morning. How are we? Okay, that's slightly better than the nine o'clock service. That was, was that a lot better? They were pretty lame, man. That was brutal. It's like, this is St. Patrick's Day. Some of you are looking incredibly festive. Maybe too festive. I don't know what you have planned after this, but calm down. Um, well, listen, as Sean said, my name is Luke uh, Simmons. I'm the lead pastor of our Gateway Congregation. And for those of you who are guests or you're new to this, Redemption is one church, multiple congregations. Uh, six right now across Arizona, most of them in the metro area, but one in Flagstaff. And we're the furthest southeast one. So uh, the people around here like to joke that we're Redemption New Mexico, but that's not actually true. If you know where ASU Polytechnic is or if the, the Phoenix Mesa Gateway Airport, uh, we're a couple miles past that. So it's far. And, uh, but it's great to see you. And I'm really excited about what God is doing at Arcadia. I've, I've visited here a number of times. We have a surge a lunch and gathering and meetings and stuff up here pretty regularly. Um, but to be able to uh, worship with you today and to be able to preach is really a great privilege. I'm, I love getting to see how God is building this particular congregation. And one of the things I love in particular is the diversity of it. Um, some of the congregations, even though this isn't ever true, it feels like you're able to really peg well, gateways like this, families, Gilbert's like this, Tempe, oh, that's college students. But, but at Arcadia, there's a really cool mix of ages and stages of life and just very cool. So I'm, I'm excited about that and thankful to be able to, to share God's word uh, with you this morning. Uh, we're just going to continue on in this series of the book of Habakkuk. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. Uh, it's right between Nahum and Zephaniah, uh, just to narrow that down for you if you need some help. That was funny, I thought, but um, it's in the crispy part of your Bible. If you have one of the, of the black, or I'm sorry, not the black, they're black at our congregation. If you have one of the, the white paperbacks in the seat uh, in front of you, it should be page 509 of the book of Habakkuk. And we're, uh, we're working through it. I also just will tell you, um, I sometimes get sweaty, and so I have a towel and so I just am telling you up front, it's more awkward if I don't have it, okay? So when you're like, does he have a towel? That's gross. Yeah, it is gross, but it's grosser if I don't. So just wanted to let you know, that's coming. All right, now that you know way too much about me, um, the theme verse of the book of Habakkuk is really kind of boiled down in chapter 2, verse 4, and we'll look at it in a moment that the righteous shall live by faith. It's a verse that gets quoted a number of times, even in the New Testament. And, it, and as I reflect on that, it makes me think of this question just to sort of set up where we're going to head today. Um, do you know what made Jesus marvel? You know, there were a lot of different times when people marveled at something Jesus did. They marveled at his uh, miracles, or they marveled at him healing somebody, or they marveled at his teaching because he taught like one with authority. But do you know what made Jesus marvel? There's a couple of times in the scriptures where it records that Jesus marveled. Jesus was amazed. Jesus was astonished. Do you know what it was? Well, in both cases, it had to do with a person's faith, either the presence of it or the absence of it. In one particular place, you can read about this in Luke chapter 6, um, you, you see that Jesus encounters a man, who, a man who's a centurion. Uh, the centurion was, meant that he oversaw, he was a commander in the Roman army, he oversaw a hundred men, thus centurion, and he had a request for Jesus. He had a servant who was sick. 
And he wanted to come to Jesus and ask Jesus to heal him. Now, this is not an uncommon request. Jesus got this a lot in his ministry. And almost always, people would say, Jesus, come with me. Come to my house. Lay your hands on my servant. And, and, and Jesus often would heal in different ways, right? Sometimes he'd lay a hand on somebody. Um, one time, even, he spit in the dirt and made mud and rubbed it in a guy's eyes and made him see. Another time, he gave a guy kind of a wet willy and he you know, could hear all of a sudden. And so Jesus did things really differently depending on the situation. So the centurion comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, my servant is ill. Will you please heal him? But Jesus, listen, I'm a man as a commander in an army. I'm a man with authority. When I give a command, people follow it. And I see that you too are a man with authority. And so Jesus, you don't need to come to my house. You don't need to lay hands on him. You just say the word and I know he'll be healed. And Jesus, it says, marveled. And he turned to the people next to him and he said, I haven't seen faith like this anywhere. He marveled at this man's faith. Now, on the flip side, Jesus also marveled at unbelief. There was a point where Jesus went back to his hometown, to Nazareth, and he began to teach and to do miracles and to do things there. Uh, but, it, but a lot of people there encountered Jesus, and they were like, isn't that Joe's kid? I think I went to high school with that guy. Like, son of God, Messiah? I, I don't think so. Which, by the way, that's amazing that Jesus was so normal that the people closest to him weren't even sure, right? It wasn't like he was voted most likely to be Messiah in high school, right? That wasn't in his yearbook, right? They're like, uh, I don't know. Even, even his brother, James, was not convinced. James eventually became convinced, which I think, by the way, if you're here and you doubt this whole Christianity thing, I think that might be the most convincing proof of Jesus being the Son of God. Is if you have a brother, what would it take your brother what do you have to do to convince you that he's the son of God? And, and so, but, but Jesus gets to Nazareth and people aren't buying it. They're like, eh, I don't know. And it says there that Jesus marveled at their unbelief. So Jesus marvels, he's astonished, he's amazed at the presence of faith and at the absence of it. He's amazed at the presence of belief and at the absence of it. He's amazed at the presence of trust and at the absence of it, why? What is it about faith that so gets Jesus' attention? Well, if you think about it, faith really is trust. Right? What the centurion did was he said, Jesus, I trust that you are powerful, that you say the word and it'll happen. Whereas the people in Nazareth did not trust. So at the, at the heart of faith is trust. And listen, the reason Jesus marveled when he saw faith, when he saw trust, is because trust is the centerpiece of every great relationship. You know that from your own life. Right? Think just for a moment about your closest friendships, your closest relationships, the people that you feel the deepest, deepest connection to. Even if you don't see them very often, right? We all have these friends and family and people who you see maybe once a year, every few years, and as soon as you pick up, you just pick up right where you left off. Why? Because there's trust. You think about the relationships in your life that are breaking, ones where there's a lot of stress and a lot of pain and a lot of, it's fraying at the edges. What is that? It's 
trust has been eroded. You know this is true. And so what excites Jesus is when trust is deep. Because what Jesus wants is not just for us to obey the rules, do the right thing. Jesus wants a relationship. That's why Jesus marvels at faith. Now, you know this from your experience, that faith and trust is just so central to relationships. I read a brilliant article a month or so ago, I think, in the New York Times. This gal wrote a very vulnerable piece about um, committing adultery and having it committed against her and just the wreckage that that brought to her marriage. And she basically said it, it, it just ate away the trust in our marriage. It ate away the trust in our relationship. Our, our, our marriage became like a leaf eaten by caterpillars, can't hold any water. It was like a bombed out city of Fallujah. She goes, and then I look at my parents with their, you know, they're 75, been married 50 years, totally boring life that I think I wouldn't want. But I compare the two. Which would I want? See, what we want, even though we're tempted by the fleeting desires of pleasure, what we want are meaningful, deep relationships because God has made us to trust. Well, that is not just something that Jesus got excited about. It's not just something that's you know, common to the New Testament. This theme of trust runs through the whole Bible. But sadly, many people and even many Christians don't really believe that or think that way. See, many Christians are what you might call practical Marcionites. Y'all are like, Yes, I know exactly what you mean. No, what's a Marcionite? Okay, Marcion was one of the first heretics in Christianity. And I just said most Christians are practical Marcionites. Marcion lived in the first century, around 85 uh, AD. And, and Marcion had this view that's very common, even by Christians today, um, that really was the idea of the Old Testament is a God of anger and wrath. The New Testament's a God of grace. The Old Testament is by works. The, the New Testament is by faith. That was kind of this idea. And in case you're new to Christianity, if you're new to this whole thing, the Bible is, is a collection of documents written by many authors over many centuries, and it really divides into Old Testament, stuff that was written before Jesus, history and, and songs and wisdom literature, and New Testament, stuff that was written about Jesus and then to the churches that believed in Jesus. And that whole collection of documents gets put together into what we know as the Bible. And, and each of these documents, from beginning to end, demonstrates a God who wants to relate to us, not on the basis of our performance, but on the basis of faith. Marcion went so far as he said, uh, you know what, let's just get rid of all these Old Testament books. And he made up his own Bible. Right? And, and he got rid of the Old Testament, and he got rid of the New Testament authors that quoted the Old Testament, and he had, in the end, a very little Bible. <laughs> which, which, honestly, listen, that's kind of how a lot of us are. We love Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Man, Romans, ooh, yeah, we're about to preach that. That's going to be great. But, but there's a reason that these parts of our Bible are crunchy. Because we tend to just not think it's that important. And yet, here's what Habakkuk shows us. Habakkuk shows us. Habakkuk is this incredible bridge between Old Testament and New Testament, all of it saying that the way God wants to relate to us is by faith. God wants us to trust Him. That's really what this is about.
Now, just to review, in case you weren't here last week, and, and just to kind of catch you up, this is a three-part series, and we're looking each week at a different part. Um, the, the first part of Habakkuk, what was explored last week, was Habakkuk's first complaint. The book of Habakkuk is a unique book. It's an interesting book because many books of the prophets, the prophet is talking to a group of people, saying, thus says the Lord. Habakkuk, though, is different because Habakkuk records a conversation between himself and God, right? In, in the first complaint, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1, he complains, and then God answers. Today, we're going to look again at Habakkuk complains, and God answers. And then the book finishes, chapter 3, with Habakkuk saying, here's what I learned through this whole thing. So this is a unique book in that we get to look at somebody who, who questioned God. God, what's this mean? God, what is this about? God, what are you doing? And he got an answer. Now listen, if you're new to faith, if you're new to the Bible, I, I understand that sounds odd. That, that someone is going to talk to God and God's going to answer back, right? Because you're going, I've tried to talk to God a lot of times. And I've even kind of told him what's on my mind. And I haven't ever heard anything back. And so it feels odd to us. But, but, but because it is such a unique experience, Habakkuk wrote it down said, I want you to learn from what I experienced. Now, the other thing you need to understand about this book is its setting. Uh, Habakkuk is writing just before the kingdom of Judah is going to be overtaken by Babylon. He's writing just in the years prior to that, and the kingdom of Judah had experienced lots of ups and downs. They had good kings, not very many, and a lot of bad kings. They had a few good leaders, a lot of bad leaders. And, and they've just entered this season where they've got no godly leadership from their leaders. And so we saw at the beginning of Habakkuk that Habakkuk is complaining to God, and he's saying, God, no one keeps your law. Your law is paralyzed. Justice is perverted. The people that are supposed to be leading us to follow you are not. And there's violence, and there's injustice, and there's wrong. And, and God, are you going to do something about your people who are running roughshod over each other? That was what his first complaint was. Really, you know what the question was? God, why are you so indifferent? You ever felt like that? God, you tell me you love me, but it doesn't feel like it. And God, how can you let all this sin and wickedness, God, how is it that wickedness seems to win? God, why are you so indifferent? And God answered Habakkuk. You can look at this in chapter 1, verse 5. And his first answer was basically, listen, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. That's what he says. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. God, why are you being so indifferent? And God says, I'm not. But listen, what I'm going to do, if I explain it to you, you wouldn't fully understand it. But here you go. And then here's his answer. I am going to take care of the injustice and the violence and the wickedness in Judah, but here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it by bringing in Babylon. And Babylon is even worse. If you guys are bad, they're really bad. They are violent. They are ungodly. They are idolatrous. They are wicked. They are oppressive. And I'm going to use them to punish and judge the sin in Judah. Well, we ended last week a little bit going, that doesn't make any sense. Are you kidding me? 
The the more evil nation is going to punish the less evil one? I don't get that. I think God doesn't explain himself. God doesn't explain and say, here's what it is. Even today, God's going to give a little more explanation, but God never fully explains it. God doesn't give explanation. He gives revelation. And that's often true for us. He doesn't say, here's exactly how this works, and here's exactly why I'm going to do it. What he says is, here's who I am. I'm in charge, I'm God, and I'm doing something. And that's how God often works. If you read the book of Job, you'll see in the book of Job that Job uh, is a righteous man. He's a blameless man, not a sinless man, but, but follows the Lord. And Satan comes to God one day and, and says, you know, God, I think that the only reason that Job loves you and is so committed to you is because you've blessed him with all this great stuff. Hey, God, I think he married you for your money. And God says, all right, let's find out. Take it all away, but don't kill him. Which shows us that God is sovereign even over Satan and evil, right? Satan's on a leash, right? Like he does a lot in the world. He does a lot of damage, but he's on a leash. So he says, okay. And so, so Satan kills most of, God, or most of Job's family. The only person he leaves behind is his wife. And she's nagging Job, and he's like, God, why couldn't you have taken her too? Right? I mean, she's just on his case, and he's like, ugh. You know, I mean, it's like, that's how bad it is. All he has left is her. And, um, and, and, and then all of his property gets destroyed, and uh, he's got sores from head to toe. Like it says that he was getting shards of pottery, so he would scrape his wounds just for some sort of relief. And the rest of that book, is, is Job trying to figure out, what is God doing? Why did this happen? And his friends come, and they have an answer, and their answer basically goes like this. Bad things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to you. You're bad. Well, we know from, from the backstory that we get as the reader that that's not what was going on at all. They've, they've missed it. But that's the common assumption. That's the common thing we think. That's even a perception that Habakkuk had in his day of, well, bad things don't happen to good people, right? But they don't resolve this answer. And, and Job is asking a question. It sounds very much like Habakkuk. How long, O oh Lord? God, what are you doing? God, why are you so indifferent? God, what's up with this? And eventually, at the end of the book of Job, God answers. But do you know what his answer is? It's not explanation. It's revelation. He doesn't say, well, Job, you know, Satan and I had this conversation, and here's what's happening. He doesn't do any of that. He just reveals himself. He says, Job, what you need more than an explanation is a vision of my majesty and greatness. And so he comes to Job, and he says, hey, Job, uh, let me ask you a few questions. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Uh, where were you when I said the ocean needs to stop here? Hey, Job, remind me, where do we keep the snow? And he just, it's just chapter after chapter of going, Job, I'm God. Trust me. That's a similar kind of thing that Habakkuk felt like at the end of the last section. And so now Habakkuk gets a chance to, to ask, to dig in, to know more. And listen, we always want to know the reasons why stuff happens. God rarely gives it. And even if he gives it, he gives us just a fraction of the reason. love this quote by John Piper. He says, God does 10,000 things in every deed. Perhaps we know a dozen, maybe two, 
but not enough to judge before he's through. I mean, we want to know the answer. God, why did this happen? And years later we go, well, this is exactly why it happened. No, God was doing thousands of things in anything. And occasionally he lets us in on why. Often he just reveals himself. But Habakkuk here gets to push in a little bit. He gets to do what we would love to do and go, now God, would you, you're right, verse 5, I didn't believe you. Like, will you explain this now? And his basic question before was, God, how can you be so indifferent? Now his question is, God, how can you be so inconsistent? How can you be so inconsistent? God, how is it that you're going to let a more wicked nation punish a less wicked one? That doesn't feel right. And that doesn't feel consistent with who you are. And so look at his complaint here in chapter 1, verse 12. He grounds it in what he knows of the character of God. I I think this is a a respectful question. I don't think Habakkuk is just griping here. I don't think he's throwing a temper tantrum. I think he's going, God, I I trust you. I I, want to trust you more, but I don't get this. Will you help me? Verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He starts in verse 12. He says, God, I know your character. I know what you're like. You're eternal. You're from everlasting. You're holy. Holy means to be set apart, to be completely righteous, to be set apart from sin. He's saying, God, I know what you're like. You're eternal. You're holy. You're sovereign, right? You've ordained them as a judgment. Like, you're doing this. You're in charge. But God, here's the problem. Here's what I don't get. Your eyes are so pure, you can't even tolerate sin. How is it that you're going to use a godless, pagan, wicked nation to punish your covenant people? The end of verse 13. Why do you remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Right? God's answer, you know, God's answer the first time raised a new problem, right? It's like whack-a-mole, right? If you ever play that, like a thing pops up, whack, okay, I got that, boom, solves, raised another question. This doesn't make sense, God. Okay, I'm glad you're going to punish Judah, But with them? What? God, how can you be so inconsistent? And what this reveals is this reveals an attitude in Habakkuk, and this reveals an assumption in Habakkuk that is common to us. It's the same kind of assumption that we have. It's the same kind of assumption that Job's friends have. It's the same assumption that people have had throughout history always, which is good people deserve good, bad people deserve bad. That's why there are books like when good things happen to bad people and when bad things happen to good people, and, right? Because that just confounds us. We can't make sense of that. And the reason is because we're religious. We're religious. And, and when I say religious, I don't mean participated in, in a church or celebrate some traditions. What I mean is this. When I, when I say religious, what I mean is we have a fundamental belief that if we do good, if we obey the right things, if we follow what God says, 
then God owes us a comfortable and a happy life. And when we don't get that, we go, wait a minute, that's not fair. That doesn't seem right because we're religious. See, there's all kinds of ways to not trust God. Most, much of this passage talks about uh, not trusting God by being rebellious. That describes Babylon. They're rebellious. But what Habakkuk reveals is that we often don't trust God because we're religious. So when I say to tr- trust God, I'm not inviting you to be religious. Say, well, I'm going to pay my dues. I'm going to earn my way. No, no, no. But that's how we think. I was studying a couple weeks ago, preparing for a sermon, and, and uh, the good part this time of year is you can just kind of do that wherever. And, and so I was outside at this park and was sitting there kind of by this water, and uh, this young man was sitting at the table next to me, and I guess a turtle jumped in the water or something that really got his attention, and he had to share it with somebody. He's like, hey, did you see that? And no, I didn't. And, and so we get to chatting. He initiated this conversation, and, and at some point he asked me, he said, so what do you do? Which always is like, I don't know how to answer this as a pastor, because here's what happens when, when you tell someone you're a pastor. One of two things. Either you tell them you're a pastor, and they're like, I do not want to talk to you anymore, freak, right? That's one thing. Or they want to tell you their whole life story, <laughs> right? And everything they think about God and all their beliefs, right? And, and, and really, honestly, neither one, I don't really want either one. I don't, like, but he went with option B. And, um, and so, he, so he started telling me all these things about how he tries to get close to God and what he tries to, to do to know God and what he's believed in and, and where he's visited at church and, and just different things he's done. And he's kind of going in this whole thing. And, and he said, you know, but every time I, I really try to follow God, something bad happens. You know, my car breaks down or something bad happens in my family. And so, you know, and then I kind of wander away and then I'll come back and, and then something bad will happen. And I kinda, but, I, but I'm really trying to do a lot to get close to God. So we're having this conversation, and at some point I, I said, you know what, Sean, I want to I tell you something that I think is going to surprise you. I think that you're actually more religious than me. He was like, what? What do you mean? Like, how could you be more religious than a pastor? I said, well, listen, Your whole approach is I can get close to God by doing all these things. And if I do them, then I think God owes me, right? I'm like a taxpayer. I paid my taxes. I deserve something for it. But but I relate to God believing that the only way I can get close to God is by His grace, by, by, by His kindness to me. I can't earn any of it. And that just kind of rattled his mind and we had a good discussion, and he said, man, thanks, I, you got me thinking. And, but listen, that perspective that, that Sean had at the park, it, it's the perspective that I came into the world with. It's the perspective that almost all of us came into the world with, and it's the perspective that Habakkuk had in this moment. And one of the things this passage does is it explodes the notion of religion, that if I do good, if I'm better than you, right, because people will go, well, nobody's perfect, but I'm better than them. Right? And that's what, that's what Habakkuk is now saying. Yeah, I know we're bad, God, but we're better than them. Doesn't that mean something? And God says, nope. So the question is, God, why are you so inconsistent? 
The rest of Habakkuk's complaint here following that question is, is him just reminding God, hey God, uh, just in case you forgot a little bit about Babylon and how bad they are, let me remind you a little bit. That's what verses 14 to, to 17 are. And, and a Babylon here is personified with a, like a he, like the king, right? He, verse 15, he brings them all up with the hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net, makes offerings to his dragnet. He's saying, God, you're going to use idolaters, people who are worshiping the things they're destroying people with, to punish us? Verse 17, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? God, you got to help me out here. God, I don't get this. So verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, I will take my stand at my watch post and wait. And I don't think this is a, I'm going to take my ball and go home uh, kind of thing. I think this is just going, God, I've, I've said what I have to say, and I'd love for you to answer me. What's going on here? And here's basically God's answer. I got this. Trust me. God, how can you be so inconsistent? I got this. Trust me. That's God's answer. Look at verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. Right? This, this is going to happen just, year, just, just a couple of years after it's predicted. Verse 3, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. Wait for it. Habakkuk, this is coming. Write this down. This is coming. This is going to happen. If it doesn't seem like it's going to happen, hold on. It's coming. It will surely come. It will not delay. Verse 4, behold, his soul is puffed up. Again, he is this personification of Babylon, like the king of Babylon. God goes, his soul is puffed up. Your translation may say, his soul is proud or his soul is arrogant. His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. God's saying, listen, Habakkuk, no, no illusions here. I know that Babylon is not good. I know that they're proud. I know that they're arrogant. I know that they're puffed up. Right? Some of you had a family situation where you were the good kid and you had a sibling who was not the good kid but your parents just believed everything they said? Like you would, you would say, no, you don't understand. They go, no, my child's an angel, right? You, you guys who are school teachers, you know what this is like, right? You're like, no, your kid's a demon. And they're like, no, no, he's great, right? Listen, God is not under that illusion. God at no point here goes, Habakkuk, really, you're blowing this out of proportion. Babylon's fine. They're great, right? He never says that. He never rebukes Habakkuk saying, Habakkuk, you're exaggerating. He's actually going to go on for the rest of this chapter and describe even more how bad Babylon is. He's saying, Habakkuk, I know. His soul's proud. His soul's puffed up. His soul's arrogant. But let me worry about him. Let me worry about Babylon. Let me figure that out. As for you, the end of verse 4, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Habakkuk, listen, what makes you righteous is not obeying, disobeying, keeping the rules, reading the law. 
What makes you righteous is faith, trust, dependence on me. Habakkuk, I got this. I'll take care of it. And the rest of this chapter, he's going to list out all these different woes. Uh, you know, woe to the, to the Babylonians, to the Chaldeans, because they take what's not theirs. They trust in their wealth. They become great through oppression. They shame their opponents. They look to idols. And there's all these things. There's these five woes. He's saying, Habakkuk, I know they're bad. I'm going to take care of them. You don't have to worry about whether they're going to get theirs. I got it. I got it. Trust me. But listen, that still doesn't really resolve the problem, does it? I mean, it's like, if you're back, you're going, okay, well, so I think your answer is you're going to eventually punish Babylon, but you're still going to punish us. You're still going to pour your judgment out on us. The wicked are still going to surround the righteous. God doesn't answer the question fully. It's not that he doesn't answer the question, he just doesn't answer it fully. And so, so the natural question for us would be to go, well, how am I supposed to trust you if I don't understand this fully? And God doesn't answer. But I think the, the followers of Jesus were on to something when they read the book of Habakkuk, and they began to quote it, and they began to teach it, and they began to use it to explain the good news about Jesus. Because this verse, Habakkuk 2.4, is quoted three times in the New Testament. It's in Romans 1, Galatians 3, Hebrews 10. This verse, the followers of Jesus understood to be deeper than just simply, hey, 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 trust me. I'm not going to explain anything, right? Because if you just think about it, you go, God, I, if you're going to let all this bad stuff happen to me, how can I trust you? How do I know that you're really good? I know you're going to be powerful enough to punish the evildoers, but, but what about us? You know, about 600 years after Habakkuk, there was another man, a righteous man, a blameless man, a godly man, but not just blameless, but with a little sin, a sinless man, a fully obedient man, a man who fully trusted, had a deep, walking, ongoing relationship with his father, a man named Jesus. And years later, this righteous man found himself surrounded by the wicked. Right? That was Habakkuk's complaint in verse 13. Why do you remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? See, there was no one more righteous than Jesus. And he was swallowed up by wicked men. He submitted to his father. He said, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, that would be great. But not what I will, but what you will. You know what Jesus is saying there? He's saying, Father, I don't fully understand this. 
Father, I, I don't really like how this feels. But Father, I trust you. And the scripture tells us that this moment of Jesus being surrounded by the wicked, of Jesus, the sinless one, paying for our sins, right? And, and not just being surrounded by the wicked, but being whipped by them and beaten by them and mocked by them and crucified by them. That that moment was the moment that told us that God loved us. God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You go, God, I don't know if I can trust you if I don't have all the answers. And what this passage points to is a Messiah whose death shows you that God is not indifferent and that God cares. And you may not have the answers. And you may go, well, gosh, that's not very satisfying. You're right. But at least in the midst of it, you know that you have a God who is for you. And the scripture says, if God is for you, who can be against you? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Nobody. See, we can't experience injustice and pain, and other people getting ahead of us and going, God, what? this doesn't make sense, right? Some of you have experienced this, right? You're trying, to, you're trying to honor God with integrity in your business. You're trying to be faithful. You're trying to tell the truth. You're trying to be honest. You're trying to have your Christianity inform the way you work, and there are all kinds of other people who aren't, and they're just, in some ways, passing you by. You go, God, how, what do I do with this? God, how do I handle this? God, that's not right. That's not fair. Some of you have had incredible sin committed against you. You've been hurt in deep ways. And you go, I know I'm a sinner, but I, I don't think I deserve that. How do you make sense of that? You go, God, what's the answer? Why did this happen? And he doesn't tell you. But he points to his son. He says, trust me. Trust me. Jesus was overcome by evil so that evil will eventually be overcome. You can trust him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for um, this example and this truth in Habakkuk that the righteous shall live by faith. God, forgive us for the moments when we uh, think that we can be righteous by our actions or by our devotion or by our works. And God, allow us to see that we're righteous simply by trusting you. And God, for others for whom the, the, the deeper questions of this book of Habakkuk, of, of where are you, God, and and how does all this work? And God, those questions for them here today, some, some, some of them are not just hypothetical questions. They're real questions. They're felt questions. And God, I pray that, that in the midst of those questions, even without all the answers, that you would show us, give us a revelation of your son Jesus.
Help us to see that, that if, if he has endured injustice, if he has endured being swallowed up by the wicked and he allows us to endure it too, then he must have good reasons. God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. On behalf of Arcadia again,